Once again, my name is Daniel. I'm the executive pastor here. And I want to start, I like to start with a little bit of fun stuff, a little bit of engagement, if you will. So who likes inspirational quotes? Inspirational quotes? You know those posters that you see with the quote and the nice photo? Oh, yeah, she already put the first one up. A nice little photo to go around it, right? Oh, they're good. It's like, walk the talk, take the initiative. You can lead, you can make the difference, right? Nice little inspirational thing. Go on to the next one. Challenge. Always set the trail. Never follow the path. And then they get, you know, as happens on the internet, typically they take these things that are really nice and inspirational and then they twist it and they kind of change the, uh, the direction of it. Motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind robots will be doing soon. Uh, persistence. It's over, man. Let her go. <laughs> or this one. Now, this one's really funny. Cheesy poofs. Because there is nothing more important than cheesy poofs. <laughs> yeah. She's, uh, she's distracting the firefighters with a nice little snack. I don't know. These things are my favorite. I really love them. They're fun. Um, but that's just, that's all it is. It's a little bit of fun. So we're talking about courage this month. Uh, the series is called Profiles in Courage. We mentioned that already. And the idea is that we've been going through some classics. We've been uh, doing some Old Testament throwbacks, if you will, and seeing how the stories of God's people and the hardships that they face can inspire us to courageous actions as well. Uh, those posters are fun, but you know, there are some things people have said in the past that really can be inspiring. So for example, Helen Keller said this one, life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. A daring adventure or nothing at all. Or I bet you've heard this one, a ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. That's not what ships are built for. John Shedd. You know, I hear the wind is supposed to be good on the lake today. Let's just call it done here. I'm going sailing. Nah, what's a little rain? No, no. Okay, I'm going to make you guess this last one. Who said every man dies, but not everyone lives? The image eh, doesn't really give it away. Maybe if we switch to this image instead. Oh, there, you recognize that guy. William Wallace. So these are all really great statements. They are inspirational commentaries that really get into your head and make you want to achieve, to fight, to live. I've got one more quote for you today, but I'm going to hold off just a little bit because it requires a bit of a backstory to really get it. It's buried in one of my personal favorite books of the Bible in the third chapter of Daniel. Uh, you've got your blue Bibles there on the seats. Feel free to use those, your mobile devices, or the words will be on the screen as usual. This is a book written about another courageous name, my namesake, in fact, who we will not be talking about today. Instead, we're talking about three of his best friends, and you might have heard of them. They're named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know those guys, right? No, no. Okay. Well, let's take a step back, back to the first chapter. And you see, the Hebrews have been captured by these guys 
the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, and their king, Nebuchadnezzar. Go ahead and say that with me. Nebuchadnezzar. Gesundheit. So the Babylonians, they lay siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is lost. And then the Babylonians gather up the smartest and the coolest and the most popular of the Hebrew boys. And these boys, they're taken back in captivity to Babylon, where they're given scholarships and a free room and board and a great education. Wait, this is slavery? I mean, well, you see, okay. The idea was basically that they would take these guys and they would teach them and put them in charge, but they would make them less Hebrew and more Babylonian in the process. And since these were the guys who would otherwise be the rulers and dictators and such back home, now they had an in with the people they just conquered. So it really did make a certain kind of sense. So back to our guys. See, the first thing that happened after they brought them back to the capital, you know, they cleaned them up, they gave them some new clothes, haircut, washed, all that fun stuff. Um, But then they gave them all new names, Babylonian names. They started the process of taking away their heritage, helping them integrate into the culture by giving them names that would make them fit in with the locals. So our guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they got the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's so much better than those confusing Jewish names. Jeez. Now, are they sounding familiar? For some of you, maybe. Well, the other option, if you grew up in the 90s, you might remember them as Rack, Shack, and Benny. That's right, VeggieTales. I told you, we're throwing it back today. And if you don't know what VeggieTales is, look up The Dance of the Cucumber when you get home today. You can thank me next week. So anyway, now we're a couple of chapters in. Daniel and the boys have already started making a bit of a scene about the food, but they're doing pretty well for themselves. And now the king, King Neb, he decides he wants to make a show of power. He wants to make sure the new kids are really getting with the program. So he sets up a statue. We assume it's probably either of himself or of one of the gods that he worships. And I don't mean like one of those life-size deals that you see of Civil War generals. This statue is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. As a point of comparison, the Lincoln Memorial statue is only 30 feet tall. The Statue of Liberty is 151 feet. And the statue on top of the Wisconsin Capitol building is 15 feet 5 inches. So this is a serious piece of work. King Neb has his statue erected. You know, it can be seen from anywhere in the city. And as soon as it's in place, he issues this decree. He says... Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, oboe, bongos, electric guitar, synthesizers, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
You got to hand it to King Neb. At least he was inclusive. People of every language, when you hear any kind of music, you bow down to that statue. But not only that, because he follows it up with, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Okay. No room for ambiguity there. He gives you a condition, he gives you an action, and he gives you a consequence. You hear music, you bow, or you burn. But then the story really starts to heat up when King Neb finds out that there are these guys that aren't obeying his command. Now, I say he found out, but seriously, this is like textbook tattling, guys. You see, Rack, Shack, and Benny were all in with Jehovah God. And so they knew the laws about bowing to idols, and they wouldn't do it. But the other fellas who weren't quite so in were already jealous of our boys because they've been getting away with stuff. They've been favored. So these other guys, they go and tell the king just to get our boys in trouble. Anyway, so King Neb finds out he's seriously aggravated, peeved, nettled, and other great thesaurus words for unhappy. And so he has them brought in. He says, is it true? Look, I was clear. If, then, else. No exceptions, no alternatives. You had one job. But maybe you just didn't understand. I know you're still kind of new to the way things work around here. I hear you're doing really well with the rest of your studies and all. So listen, I don't usually do this. But I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Let me explain it again. The band will play a little tune. You bow and worship the idol. And we'll forget this thing ever happened. Otherwise, you're going in that furnace right there. And I get that you're into your God and all that, but have you ever seen a God that could save you from that? Take a second. Put yourself in their place. Really think about this. Have you ever been burned? It's a pretty painful thing. Like, the initial heat is bad, to be sure, but then because the skin is damaged, now the nerves are exposed, and everything that touches it just brings the pain right back. Now, I've had a few jobs in the food service industry myself, and I remember one of my first jobs, I was a dishwasher, and the water in that dish machine was so hot that by the end of the first couple of weeks, my fingers had been burned so many times, my fingerprints were smooth. Those heat lamps that they keep the food under while it's waiting to be taken out to the tables, I've definitely you know, slipped a couple times and hit the heating elements. I've got some scars to prove it. And I've stood in front of the stove on the cook line where it's 450 degrees for hours at a time. Let me just tell you, all of that pales in comparison to what these guys were looking at. When I say a furnace, I'm not talking about the appliance in the basement of your house 
I'm not talking about a little space heater. This was a torture device designed to burn you alive. This is what they meant by furnace. It was like that scene in Fantastic Four when the invisible girl puts up the, the force field around Dr. Doom and then Johnny goes supernova to like melt him solid. Only there's no force field, it's just a giant kiln. And there's no sci-fi, I mean it's real life. Uh, but these guys aren't made of living metal. They're just flesh and bone like you and me. And not only would they die, but there would be no body left to bury. No funeral, no way for their families to mourn over the loss. So not only was it a punishment, it was embarrassment at the same time. And this is what Rakshak and Benny were looking at in this moment. So, at that same moment, the king is giving them an out, an easy out. He takes the good guy approach. Hey, we all make mistakes. And he says, just try again. Show me you know how to get with the program, and you don't have to suffer an agonizing and socially stigmatic death. You can go on with your lives. And they had good lives, remember? They were being given the best education, positions of authority. They had a lot going for them. And all they had to do was kneel down for a minute. You can almost imagine them thinking it over for a second, yeah? Maybe we could fake it. Like, as soon as we hear the music, we could bow and pray to our God, but be facing in the same direction as a statue? Or just kind of cross our fingers? God's forgiving, right? Maybe we can sacrifice afterward to make atonement. Well, maybe that just shows you what kind of weakness I deal with every day. But our boys, they don't even think twice. And here's that final quote that I promised you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. It's mm. good, isn't it? Really hits you in the soft spot. With that furnace in view, they look the king in the eye and they say, the God we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. That's guts. That is courage. Now, of course, if, as you can imagine, this is not what the king expected. This is not what he was after. Now, he is enraged. He is outraged. He's got so much rage, it's in and out at the same time. He says, you know what? Make the fire even hotter. That'll show him. And the guys are tied up and they're thrown into the furnace, and it's so hot. The guards that had to throw them in 
can't even get close enough without burning themselves so seriously, they wind up dead. Just throwing them in. You know that feeling when you're camping and you're, you know, you're a little close to the campfire, the way the, the skin on your face starts to feel like it's stretched out, like it's, it's hot and dry, or you've been on this, out in the sun on the beach a little too long. You're not even sweating anymore because your skin is already burning or the sweat's just evaporating before it can do any good. These guys, they are feeling that same heat against their skin as they're being thrown into their own funeral pyre. And then just when they expect the skin to start sizzling, they know that pain is going to start any moment now. It doesn't. And they, they sit up and they look around. There's no pain. And like their bonds seem to have been burned off. So they get up and they sort of dust themselves off. and They're moving around trying to figure out what's going on. Right? They're confused. Or are they? And then the, it says, the king Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He must have thought he was hallucinating. Not only did they not die like the guards that just threw them in, but they're moving around and there's another one. And, well, he's different. The king says he looks like a son of the gods. I don't know if it's true, but some people speculate, well, this, this could have been an angel or this could have even been Jesus Centuries before his earthly birth, sort of making an early appearance, as it were. I don't know. It doesn't actually specify. In either case, it does kind of sound like the thing that God would do, right? I mean, he can walk on water. Why not walk through the fire? So this story, it's an old story. It's an ancient story. But it's talking about a very relatable, very modern problem. See, all of us, one way or another, if we're serious about following Jesus, we're going to face times when we are pressured to bow down to idols. Probably not 90-foot-tall golden ones, but who knows? I know that typically when we hear the word idol, what we think about are like the little statues uh, that some cultures keep in their homes, you know, the shrines to the gods that they attribute the behaviors and patterns of the world around them. Little Buddhas or Krishnas or those sorts of things, right? And to be sure, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you shouldn't be praying to those idols, just to be clear. God made it really clear that he wants you to be wholly devoted to your relationship with him and not to try to split the difference between lesser gods. But when I talk about idols here, about worshiping other gods, I'm not just talking about recognized world religions. 
Because what is an idol? What is worship? Worship is when you give your praise and love to something other than yourself. You consider it more important than anything else. And an idol is anything other than God that receives that worship. Anything that you consider first when you're making decisions. Now, that's a pretty broad definition. See, if you're being asked to compromise your beliefs or your integrity at work in ways that keep you from living the way God instructed us to live, that's the idol of success. And if you don't bow, maybe the furnace is being passed over for that promotion or even fired. School's about to start up again. I kind of expected a cheer there almost, but so good. And students already know about the idols they're told to bow down to every day, don't they? Acceptance, popularity, reputation. And if you don't bow, maybe the fire is exclusion or ridicule. Your relationships can become idols. And don't get me wrong, you should love your spouse. You should love and care for your children. You should love your community. But to be honest, your spouse is kind of a lousy god. Aren't they? I mean, when's the last time they performed a miracle? And, and your kids are kind of lousy gods too. When's the last time you thought they were perfect or all-knowing? I mean, maybe they thought it. Uh, but here's the thing. Even the quest for perfection, for holiness, can become an idol. If it becomes more to you than the relationship to the God who commanded and defined and embodies that holiness, that perfection, if it's that relationship with him that is what you should be seeking above all else. It's the love of the Father that you should be worshiping. Because he's the only real God, and he's the only one who deserves it. If all you're seeking is the actions without the relationship, you may as well be worshiping anybody. Anything else is an idol. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teaches us that we don't have to bow down to the idols being forced upon us. And I want to suggest three specific things that you can take away from their story that can also apply to your story. When temptation rises and we have to choose between the idol and the furnace. Lesson one, God will meet us in the furnace. If I were in this situation, if this was the story of Jeff, Steve, and Danny, I would really have appreciated it if God would have shown up about three minutes sooner. Wouldn't you? It would have been really nice to have been delivered from the fire, but God decided to deliver them in the fire. And that's pretty common. Sometimes, yeah, you pray for relief, and God chooses to take away the temptation, to get rid of the pressure, to relieve the pain. 
but way more often he doesn't. He doesn't take the hard stuff away. He doesn't get rid of the fire because he knows like a fine sword, the fire makes you stronger. He knows that like a precious metal, the fire makes you better. He doesn't take the fire away. Instead, he simply promises to be in the fire with you, to be ever-present, maintaining you, helping you, protecting you, and keeping you. So if you find yourself in your furnace today, if you're going through hardships, and it feels like all is lost, remember that God meets you in the fire, and he will deliver you. Now look at what's written in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, basically got as close as he could, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. That's a change of tone. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego step out of the fire. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. That same king that was willing to kill anyone who wasn't worshiping him and his statue just a few minutes ago, has now turned a complete 180 and is praising the God who delivered these men from the fire. And that's lesson two. God will reach others through the furnace. God used Rakshak and Benny's hardship, their furnace, to bring about a change in the king himself. And God can use your hardship, your furnace, to change the hearts and minds of the people around you. You can ask anyone who's ever gone through a 12-step program, anyone who's ever kicked an addiction, when you've lived through something that tough, you find yourself in a unique position to help others in similar situations to get through their own furnaces. No one, no one at all understands the pain and heartache of losing a child, except someone who's lost a child. So who better to counsel and comfort a mother experience that same pain? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as the saying goes. So after God delivers you in the fire, you are uniquely equipped to help others in similar situations. And lesson three, God will bless you through the furnace. After they came out of the furnace, look what happens. It says in verse 30, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They get new positions, new opportunities, new influence. 
Instead of having their heritage and history slowly fade away in the Babylonian system, they are promoted to places where they can influence others for God. Now, I'm not going to promise you anything specific. If you've ever hear someone tell you that God is going to give you riches and glory, you turn and walk away. Especially if they ask you for a donation with the same breath. (sighs) If you think the Christian life is all sunshine and unicorns, just take a look at how Jesus himself made it out in his life. Right? He was beaten. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was executed. He didn't get a big house and a fancy car. He wasn't popular or successful by any worldly standards. But of course, the kingdom of God is not built on the same principles of success that the world would tell you. But all of that said, God does promise to bless our faithfulness. James writes, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No pot of gold, but a crown of life. I don't think Rakshak and Benny were all that impressed with their fancy new titles and all that. But I do think they felt blessed beyond measure when they thought back on how they were saved from that fire. How they met one like a son of the gods there. And how their lives were part of God's plan to turn the nation of Babylon a little closer to God. We can start to believe that God's main job is to keep us out of the fire. And then our prayers start to become, help me avoid the pain, remove the discomfort, take away the suffering. But then we start to believe that the most important thing is for life to be smooth, comfortable, easy, happy. And if our primary goal is the eradication of pain, then anything that feels good is fair game. This is such a big part of why we have an opioid epidemic in the United States right now. You know, people will do anything to remove any sort of pain. And doctors have been put in a position where if they won't treat that pain, they're slapped with a legal suit. So today, I want to ask you to consider doing something dangerous. I'm going to ask you to pray a dangerous prayer. I'm going to put it up on the screen real quick. God, give me an opportunity to grow in my love for you. I no longer ask you mainly for comfort or success or security. God, I ask you to lead me wherever you want so that I grow closer to you and so others' lives are changed even if it means following you into the fire, because I know you will meet me there. That is a risky prayer, because he might just do it. It's a challenging idea to invite God to lead you into hardship. So if you feel like you're unable or unwilling to pray that prayer today, be honest with him about it. 
Ask him instead to lead you to a place where you trust him enough that you don't fear the furnace. Where your faith in him is stronger than your fear of pain or hardship. Jesus never said, God has a wonderful life for you and it's a big house, a perfect spouse, 2.5 great kids, an amazing job, and a fancy car. He said, follow me. Bow to nothing but me. There will be trouble along the way, but life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. A ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And everybody dies, but not everyone lives. May you and I be people who live. People who say, the God we serve is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down.